I think that there's an opportunity for us to just not reinvent, but to invent more opportunities. Oftentimes it's like, you know, people are like, oh, the, the system's broken. I'm like, no, the system is designed to work this way. It is working exactly as designed. My entire career has been an accidental career. Nothing I have done has been planned. Not a <laughs> single thing. Hello, and welcome to the Theatre Art Life podcast, sponsored by Harlequin Floors, the world leader in floors, stage systems, and studio equipment for the performing arts. Our podcast puts the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the world, the culture creators, the backstage masters. My name is Anna Robb. Today we're talking with David Stewart. David Stewart holds multiple roles within Disney Live Entertainment Global, such as producer, creative development, content and inclusive strategies. David's produced works at Disney include Magic Kingdom's 50th anniversary spectacular, Disney Enchantment, Beacons of Magic, the remount of Happily Ever After, NBA and MLS Sports Bubbles, DJ's Ready Set Party Time, Wonderful World of Animation and Joyful. Dee Stewart's worked for the National Association of Black Journalists, the Guthrie Theatre, the University of Texas at Austin, the University of Wisconsin. He's been a stage manager for His Holiness the Dalai Lama, the NAEA stage manager for Madison Repertory Theatre, Studio Arena Theatre, St. Louis MUNY, Kansas City Starlight Outdoor Musicals, the Little Theatre on the Square and Vienna's Austria's English Theatre. Dee is a member of USITT, Chair EDI Committee, Board of Directors and Co-Founder of the Gateway Program, and Dee Stu is the founder of Production On Deck, a production search and consulting firm. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm going to have to read that again because it's just so much information. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like the bio of a really old person. <laughs> it's okay. So where, but where do, so where do we start? How long have you worked for Disney? I've worked for Disney. I just passed in January, July by four-year mark. So I've only been wow. here for four years. And what was it like going to Disney from, um, from you know, theater and the work that you've been doing before? Because it's such a big corporation, right? It's a gigantic corporation. Uh, and Disney, when they hired me, told me that they hadn't hired someone from outside of the corporation in over a decade because it's such a big organization. And there's just so much to learn and so many partnerships to have and just so much nuance uh, to the work that's being had there. So the difference is basically just the scope and scale of things. You know, you just move the decimal to the right and the budgets get progressively larger and the partners you have are progressively larger. But at the core of the work that I do, it's about communication. It's about people. It's about entertaining people and, and bringing joy to their lives. So there's more similarities than there are dissimilar, uh, dissimilar matters. Yeah. So just for those who aren't in the corporate structure, what does Disney Live Entertainment encompass in the, in the company? Right. So Disney Live, we, we get those things confused a lot. A lot of folks are like hit me up and like, hey, so talk to me about Disney Theatrical. I'm like, Disney Theatrical is a different entity from Disney Live Entertainment. Uh, so Disney Theatrical deals with the, the Broadway house that Disney has in New York. Uh, Disney Live Entertainment is basically anything that has to do with so it says in the title, live entertainment. So your fireworks shows, your characters, when you do meet and greets, any dance parties that may have uh, going on, anytime that we are bringing live entertainment to the masses. Think of like the, the Stormtroopers or Kylo Ren 
or um, cars, any of those characters, things like that. Mm. And so that so you're involved in that on a global scale as part of your role. Is that correct? Part of my new role, my former role as production manager, was focused primarily in Orlando. Mm. Mm. And what does that look like now that it's global? You must be involved in so many conversations. <laughs> What's going on around the globe? Man? It's so true. It's, it's it's kind of one of the weird things. I had to kind of really think about it when I was taking on this new job because I've been, for the past 30 years, long time, uh, just focusing on projects. I would go and I would stage manage Dancing at Lunasa, and then I would produce West Side Story, and then I would come in and I would build a the new fireworks spectacular for the 50th anniversary for magic kingdom. So they were very much the definition of projects. They have a definite beginning, a definite middle and a definite end. And I was very accustomed to that. So now in my new role of being part of the inclusive strategies team for Disney live entertainment, number one, it's a brand new role. This role didn't exist three months ago. It doesn't exist anywhere in the world. It doesn't exist in entertainment. So I have to kind of figure out, what it's going to be. So I am fortunate that I have a director, uh, Marsha Jackson Randolph, who is my boss. For the Game of Thrones fans out there, I always say that I am the hand of the queen uh, that is Marsha Jackson Randolph. Um, And our job is to basically go in and look at content, both content that we have uh, in the past, content that we have presently, and content that we're looking for in the future for inclusion and relevancy and just to make sure that we have representation in the work that we're doing we understand that disney is no longer we've known this for quite some time but disney is no longer just a domestic offering it is a worldwide we are the world's largest entertainment company and with it comes uh to steal a little bit from spider-man with great responsibility or great power comes great responsibility So we really want to be mindful with the material that we're putting out there, that we're careful with it, that we are representative, that we're being authentic. It's no longer good enough to sit there and go, this is the trope from fill-in-the-blank country that we saw in the 1950s and put it on our stages. We have to to make sure that we are looking for um, the experts, the subject matter experts that can really speak to how do we bring a truly representative and truthful and authentic lens and voice to the work that we're doing. What an amazing role. I mean, that must be to be able to formulate that and to really look at that from a cultural perspective is really fascinating and challenging, I'm sure, you know. And I guess my other question then, does that also mean for you to consider breaking down the traditional looks of Disney say characters and stuff like that if they're in more live entertainment stuff like is that a is that a consideration uh i don't think so i think that we we really try to hold true for the most part to our original uh ip intellectual property Uh, i think that what i would love to see the company do is just create more stories around that so we're not altering what the country or the world is perceived as a traditional character. So I think that there's an opportunity for us to create more stories and uh, more diverse stories. And I think we're doing that. You see that in Coco, you see that in Encanto, which is just a gigantic, gigantic success. You see that in Black Panther and, you know, the world is waiting with bated breath for Black Panther 2. And Moana. And Moana. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that there's an opportunity for us to just not reinvent, but to invent more Mm. opportunities absolutely it's such a good mission and you know i think that even though there just seems to be i know that moana even resonated with a lot of white 
New Zealand friends of mine, you know, like it, it doesn't necessarily need to be appealing to the ethnicity that you are portraying on the screen or the stage, but what it means for those people within that culture. And I just, I think that's amazing because uh, what better company than to start to implement that than some uh, behemoth like Disney, you know, and, and at some point somebody's going to pick up the flag and lead the way. Uh, no, <laughs> so absolutely. It's amazing. Well, you, you, know, yeah. you talk about that with uh, the, the New, New Zealander representation and what that means to not just, you know, uh, most cult- cultures are not monolithic in look or approach or thought. But Marsha and I spent some time in California in June specifically diving into the Pacific Islander Native Hawaiian uh, culture and working in those communities and really getting a deeper understanding of that and to understand that there, there's, you know, you have... New Zealand and you have Hawaii and you have just hundreds of islands and cultures in between. Uh, and to know that, you know, together they can make a really strong political voice or movement in terms of direction that uh, the community wants to go into, but also are very much a multifaceted culture with so many different offerings. And how does that then play out on 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 you personally and your culture and your upbringing? I always find when you start to explore other cultures that you're often faced with a bit of a mirror, you know, with <laughs> your own bias oh. and your own. <laughs> <laughs> it's so 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 true. You know, the when I accepted this job, I think I woke up in the middle of a cold sweat, going, "I'm going to suck at this job." Uh, mainly because of that, <laughs> it's like I, I thought there, and I'm like, I am far from a cultural expert on. American culture, let alone the so many var- uh, varieties of cultures that exist on uh, on our planet, and then I, I kind of had that that sit down and go, "Distu, just relax, calm down. Your job is to be the expert in identifying experts." So knowing that I'm I'm not working on this alone, I'm you know there, I work with uh, some great partners with Walt Disney Imagineering and Disney Life Entertainment. Um, we're kind of a hybrid now, so I'm both an Imagineer and still work for uh, Disney Live Entertainment. Um, so to have a lot of great resources, and it's one of those things where we have uh, consultants, and I'm used to theater consultants, and then I met our new consultants, not our new consultants, but I was new to them, and we're talking about advisors to past presidents. We're talking about UN ambassadors. We're talking about all these people that have just a deep immersion in their specialty, and I'm like, well, that's a relief. I could I could always approach it as a threat, and I, it's like, no, this is an asset. These are amazing people that are willing to sit down and, and talk to me about these things. And just the amount of learning I've done in the past mm, ten weeks has just been outstanding. And regarding and looking at other cultures, and you know, you asked that question about that that reflection in the mirror. Um, it actually kind of got me a little bit more settled. Being a, a mixed race individual, my mom was white, my dad is black kind of growing up in that sometimes confusion around what my identity is, who do I relate to? I'm obviously not white. And so it's hard to relate to the white culture and sometimes not black enough for the black culture and um, trying to find, find my way and, and who I am and, and doing this work. It's like, no, you know what? I, I, I am good with who I am. It affords me. I always acknowledge my light skin pr- privilege and my proximity to whiteness and what that affords me. But also understanding what it's like to, you know, get pulled over by the police and being accused of stealing a car and, and those kind of things. You know, my, my dad was very, very adamant. Uh, it's so funny. I get, I get teased or made fun of or about the way I speak. 
there was a time when uh, we were in Madison and we had closed on the house and I had to go meet with an insurance salesman. I'd been conversing with him over the phone and he came in and he kind of looked. He's like, you're David? I'm like, yep. He's like, oh, you're not what I expected. I'm like, mm, what did you expect? I knew good and well what he expected. And he turned around and, and changed the conversation. Or interviewing. I went in for an interview someplace and uh, the person that was supposed to meet me came into the theater lobby. I was sitting in there in a suit. I'm the only person sitting there in the suit. And he comes in and he scans the room, looks at me, keeps scanning the room. And I'm like, are you looking for David Stewart? He's like, yeah. I'm like, I'm David Stewart. I know I'm not what you were expecting because of how I talk. And that kind of harkens back to my dad. It was actually my dad that was like, in order for you to make it in white America, you're going to have to learn how to speak differently or code switch, as we call it, um, to be able to kind of switch in and out of different vernaculars. So, yeah, there's a lot of that influence comes from from my parents about who I am and and trying to be proud in that in that space. That's such a fascinating story, and I, I, I love to hear from people's personal experience, obviously, because I am not of that race, and Australia has its own demons with its Indigenous uh, population and stuff as well. So I just watched on the aeroplane, actually, the Chronicle of Racism in America documentary. Have yeah, you seen Netflix. it? Yeah, I, Netflix. You know, I've started it. I started some of those things, and I'm like, I just can't watch it. It just is really hard for us to believe that we're in some of those places. And I've studied so much of that as to, to understand where we are. But I do need to go back. I, I do need to watch it and, and to see if there's any kind of new gleanings I can, can take from it. Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing sort of educational arc of how everything evolved. And it's just, I mean, it's a must watch for most people, especially Americans. I mean, anybody really who wants to understand how things were portrayed and, you know, oh, it's just so, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of that kind of history and understanding because it's, again, it, it's a roadmap for how the culture evolves, right? And and it's never one thing. It's always so many collections of, of moments and people and people in certain positions. And it's only really in retrospective can you actually, you know, navigate that and say, okay, this is how we are, where we are now. And hopefully then, send it in a positive direction from that point if there's enough people acknowledging where what that is you know it's just a really interesting story and I think there's a lot to be done still in Australia as well in terms of that and it's just especially in the last few years there's been much more effort to uh, understand why we are where we are which I think is a great thing right without a doubt yeah it's a it's always good to kind of understand that that history and, and know the, the the track and Oftentimes it's like, you know, people are like, oh, the, the system's broken. I'm like, no, the system is designed to work this way. It is working exactly as designed. We actually have to break the system. The system isn't, the system isn't broken. Yeah, exactly. How does any of the sort of across the globe in terms of political, and maybe you cannot can't check, but in terms of the political uh, nature of every place that you may be working on, does that have any effect on the live entertainment and how you what you choose to do and how it's rolled out? Is there is there consideration of what's going on uh, in country to country? Because there's so much going on politically and, right. you know, between countries as well. So No, exactly. Um, yeah, I'm not going to uh, touch too much on that, but what I will touch on is the, the understanding that so many cultures are so different and in, in what they perceive to be their inclusion needs. Or what their needs are in terms of diversity, or what those things look like. We we come from a, a very American centric point of view, uh, and I want to make sure that I'm very mindful that when we're looking for uh, additional BIPOC talent for Walt Disney World, 
for for Disneyland that that may not translate to our Paris market or may not translate to our Asian markets. And just to be mindful about what are the front of mind topics that are in each of those parks and really get a deeper understanding of what those things are and really try to address them within the culture in a, a truthful manner of the culture which they're in. Yeah. So have you been then to all the parks? You probably haven't since you've taken this role because of COVID, right? <laughs> I have not. I, I'm so, I need, you know, as a matter of fact, I'm looking at these, my re- passport renewal documents that are sitting here and I'm like, I have to get my picture taken. I have to send in my money and get this done because it's only a matter of time. Carmen Smith, who's one, uh, our leader on the uh, Disney Imagineering side, is like, keep keep a bag packed because I will have you on the road in a heartbeat. And she wasn't lying. We were... Um, she had, she had scheduled a New York trip and then it came off the books due to some scheduling things. And then about a week later, she's like, we're going to New York next week. Pack your bags. I'm like, okay, here we go. But internationally, we haven't had a chance to, to do that quite yet. We really want to kind of put our feet firmly on the ground. Um, we're, again, we're a brand new team trying to create a framework for the work that we're doing. Um, so I just really want to be mindful that we, we have our, our T's crossed and our I's dotted before we start doing that kind of work. Mm. Well, you'll have to come because they just opened the new nighttime spectacular show in the, in the castle in Hong Kong. And uh, my husband has been, he, he works for Tate, so he's been intricately involved throughout the pandemic to get that. And we tried to go see it before we went on holiday and um, there was a typhoon, so we missed out. So we have, oh, to, no. I have to go see it once we're out of quarantine and um, and see the show. But it looks spectacular from what I, you know, I've been there when there's been a couple of fireworks and water fountains going off, but I haven't seen the full thing yet. (laughs) I'm so excited to get there. Like I said, we were uh, on the call with Hong Kong last week and very much anxious to get over there and to start assisting them with this work and to see what they have to offer. I'm really, really excited to do do that. I think as as a person that has two children, I think it's a perfect size park to go around in one day, right? Like it's not overwhelming. It's not too much, but you can get everything I, I took my daughter's birthday, like not this year, but the year before. I took eight eight year olds to Disney by myself. Oh, how exciting! <laughs> my oh my gosh! It was, yeah, it was chaos. I love it. <laughs> Anytime my wife and daughter want to go to the park, I, I'm always like, okay, remind yourself you don't have to go for the full day. Take a leave before you go. It's, I even do that when I go to the overnights. I'm like, how do I prep my body? You know, hydrate two days before you have to go do the thing. It's like I'm going on exactly. a wilderness safari or something. It's like you make, sure <laughs> make sure your body's in order before I go traipsing around the park uh, for a day. Yeah, exactly. And now a moment for our sponsor. The Theatre Art Life podcast is proud to be sponsored by Harlequin. Harlequin is the world leader in floors, stage systems, and studio equipment for the performing arts. Established in the UK over 40 years ago, Harlequin is the preferred performance floor for the world's most prestigious dance and performing arts companies, theatres and schools. From the Royal Opera House to the Bolshoi Theatre, the New York City Ballet to the Royal New Zealand Ballet. Harlequin's experience and reputation are founded on the development, manufacture and supply of a range of high-quality sprung and vinyl floors specifically designed for dance and the performing arts. Backed by an engineering team and independent research, Harlequin also designs, builds and refurbishes stages working with stage engineers and theatre consultants in leading venues across the world. Harlequin is the global leader in its field with offices in Europe, the Americas and Asia Pacific. Find out more at harlequinfloors.com, H-A-R-L-E-Q-U-I-N floors.com. 
So you you started as a stage manager and then you've kind of moved your way through up into the role that you are now. Um, what's that sort of transition for you? What, what do you see as the major sort of transitions maybe? Because a lot of people ask, you know, how to get into the industry and then how to move up. So what was your, not to go into a whole diatribe of your history, but what was your sort of key key moment that got you into the industry and then where you see it was your key sort of steps to move forward in into those larger roles? Right. That's a great question. Um, so coming in, it's my entire career has been an accidental career. Nothing I have done has been planned. Not a <laughs> single thing. I mean, I would say starting out with, uh, I grew up as a martial artist. My knees were not fantastic. So I was in high school and I was taking the gym class. He's like, it wasn't for me. And my buddy's like, take stagecraft. It's an easy A. And it was the furthest thing away from an easy A. It was the hardest thing I'd ever done. But that's, I, I, I didn't fall in love with theater so much. You, you hear people are like, I love Shakespeare. And I was in plays when I grew up. I was like, I fell in love with the guy who said, Stu, do this better. Go rebuild this platform. Go rebuild that flat. Go rehang that light. Do it again. Do it better. You're better than this. Do it again. Do it better. And I'm like, oh, that dude inspired me through theater. I hope maybe one day I could do the same thing. So mine has been using the art form as more of an inspiration point than an actual dedication to the art itself. I would say then I thought I knew theater when I was like in my third year in, in college and didn't know jack squat about it, come to find out, uh, as I ended up at the conservatory at Webster University. And I was like, oh, this is what real theater people do. Uh, I'm going to need to stick around for school for a little bit. And then just being fortunate in, in the jobs I've had and where I've gone, I think the, the, let me back up. So one of my first key takeaways was understanding that whatever I did during the season for uh, regional theater was to take those, those learnings of learning from the stage managers I was working with, good, bad, or ugly, and apply them when I went to a summer stock theater. I'm like, summer stock was just a great training ground for me to hone the skills that I had learned during the season of like, when to call a break when there's a tense situation, how to make better coffee, how to listen with an empathetic ear, all those kind of things I learned or didn't learn during the, the, the I almost called it the school year, during the regular season, and then applied it to a summer stock situation. I could have kind of quick twitch uh, experiences to see if they worked or didn't work or fit who I was as a person. Uh, not not trying to emulate someone else. So that was probably my first big one. Uh, I think the second big one was when I was at the Children's Theater Company, uh, Minneapolis, the first time I went there. And I'm like, this is not a city for me. I came in with a chip on my shoulder. I thought I was a hotshot stage manager. And they brought me in. They're like, we need you to change the, the stage management culture here. It's grand stagnant. We want to up the level. And I'm like, I really took that. And I'm like, you're going to do this paperwork and you're going to run your meetings this way. And that team turned against me, rightfully so. And I'm like, mm, this is this is not a place for me. So I only I stayed there for a year before I left, and I left the industry completely. And one of the things I told myself is that if I ever were to lead another department or organization, was I need to sit back and understand what the key learning was from the organization I was previously with. And my big learning from the children's leader was sit back and get the pulse of an organization before you make big changes to give voice, give voice to the people. So I remember getting my, my uh, job with the University of Wisconsin-Madison and coming in as their head of uh, stage management and head of production as a brand new position. Seemed to be 
have a knack for doing brand new positions in this industry. <laughs> but but um, awesome. I know, right? <laughs> so I remember being at lunch with the the team and they're like, so you're just going to sit and listen for six months? I'm like, yeah, I mean, I, I can make decisions. I'm fully capable of it. But I want to know what makes UW tick so that I can really address the 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 high yield, high impact needs of the department before I go in and just scuttle everything and make build it in the image of these two uh, that no longer works. So that was a big one for me. And then the other one, one was listen to the universe. I'm often told I, I got this from uh, my friend, Jack Fivo. Uh, he used to be a Disney executive. He's like, always surround yourself with people smarter than yourself. Cause I'm always like, dude, I feel really stupid being in the room with Joe Hodge and, and these other leaders. And he's like, you surround yourself with people that are smarter with you to up your game. So I really kind of take that to heart and try not to engage in too much lizard brain and imposter syndrome. I mean, it's still present. Don't get me wrong. But to really kind of try to pay attention to those things and um, surrounding yourself with people that will push you to do better. Uh, again, it goes all back to John Van Epps in high school, right? I'm drawn to the people that push me to do greater and better things. And so I, I, I hope to do that for other folks, too, is to kind of push them and drive them to do better things and to let them, you know, I used to have what was called the crying chair at the University of Wisconsin. People used to, like, have their thumbnail and would draw a groove in it because they would sit there and they would cry and they would laugh and they would have all kind of moments. And I, my job was to sit there and go, all right, let's talk it. Let's talk strategies. Give them a little pat on the back and say, out you go, off you go. You can do this. So those were the probably the big things is really to kind of listen, to not be as fearful of the opportunities that lie before you and to get the pulse of an organization. All comes back to like the top of our conversation is centering people. And that doesn't mean not holding them accountable, but listening with an empathetic ear. I love that. I, I think, you know, something that you touched on that you, you kind of made that error early in your career where it didn't really work out. And, and I, comes to me that I, I think that did you in your sort of stage management training or the degree that you did did was there much on management of people in, to be taught no that's a great question absolutely not it's one thing that I, yeah. I really actually turned my program into it's like I turned it into a people-centric one rather than focusing on paperwork and focusing on mm. the, the technical aspects of it I'm like because it's teach. 90% of the job. <laughs> right, right, exactly. It's like, oh, yeah, by the way, there are human beings in the room. I should actually tend to them. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just what I can make a great schedule. But I can make a hell of a schedule, right? Watch, look at this. I got I got Excel on top of Excel on top of Excel, right? <laughs> Woo! That's right. Don't talk to me about the hard stuff, but I can really kind of point you to a, a yeah. well-blocked script. <laughs> exactly. Um, but it was yeah. really kind of try, trying to center those people, uh, trying to center them in, in the work that I did. And, and when I was teaching, uh, I, you know, I, I was a heavy emphasis on personality analysis and body language. I'm like, these are the things that will give you all the information that you need. Uh, and learning how to, to I, one of my favorite, excuse me, one of my favorite books was The Platinum Rule, which is, you know, treating people how they want to be treated, not how you want to be treated. Uh, because if, if everyone started, you know, I, I have a directing socializer uh, personality and my type is, I'm not a big fan of people. So if you're like coming into my office, it's like, tell me your problem, give me some options. I'll tell you the solution, get out. And I have to be very mindful to sit there and go, 
okay, listen to what they have to say. I remember working with a boss of mine one time and he and I were great friends until he became my boss. And then we were like colliding with one another. I'm like, what is going on? Why can't Tony and I get on the same page? And then I realized I'm like, oh, he's a socializer, socializer. So instead of saying, you know, scheduling five minutes with him and going, okay, I need you to sign this. And I'm like, why is he like bumping up against me? I'm like, okay, schedule a half an hour, go in, ask him how his wife's doing, ask him how the job's doing, what is his next project, please sign this document, what are you doing this weekend, <laughs> how's everything else going, and then our relationship, right? our relationship turned instantaneously the moment I'm like, oh, this is what he needed in order for him to do that. So just making those adjustments, you know, people ask oftentimes in interviews, what's your leadership style? And I always go to adaptive. Uh, just trying to figure out what people what people need. And sometimes what they need is not necessarily what they want. So just trying to keep that in mind. Yeah, it's not all, you know, sunshine and rainbows in that context, but you do have to extend. I, I, I find that fascinating, especially for the journey into like management, because I also have made my my own mistakes in the past. Um, and I have actually the, the asset of my father was always a very, inquisitive is always an inquisitive person like he always wants to know about you and and, and shows interest and, and I have inherited that which is why I do things <laughs> I, like I'm a like, podcast you obviously. know <laughs> exactly but it, but I never really lent into that to begin with you know I was trying to play a role I guess of mm. what I thought stage management was but when you realize that the best way is through your own authenticity and 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 your own interest in other people it it, it really boosts that yeah I mean as you know I love that you're saying that you act on your instinct or you listen to the universe in a sense because this career is never linear and it's so broad and vast and uh you have to go where you as you're evolving I feel like it's actually a craft it's not something that you go to university and you come and smash it out right like I wouldn't probably say I was a great stage manager until 10 years after I left university right like it's something that I cultivated and and through you know bu- buggering it up and you know doing this gig <laughs> and doing that gig and doing all that that it that it goes okay now I know what I'm doing right um, needed a little bit of life time. <laughs> yeah exactly it's just, which I think is great but I think that's why when I speak to people it's like when younger people I just just go and do it like just right. go just do it all do it all do it all do it all and then you'll figure out what you want to do, you know, four or five years after you've left university, you'll start to hone back into uh, this is the lane of entertainment that I fit in, this is what I, I feel comfortable, this is what I'm good at, right? and this is what I, what I evolve in. So, no, it's a fascinating. So it sounds very similar to me. I, I want to ask, so tell us about Production on Deck. What it, What is that and how does that work? Sure. Um, production on Deck came out of my brain back in... 2013, 14, um, and it happened around an event when I, I was with USITT, United States Institute for Theater Technology, and one of my great friends, Tanisha Jefferson, was uh, head of stage management. She was a great production manager, well-regarded in the industry, beloved in the industry, and uh, nine years ago, she had a massive brain aneurysm and passed away. Uh, and a uh, powerful black woman was the one that kind of drugged me into activism, drugged me into some spaces at USITT, uh, People of Color Network. And it's like, your voice, you, your voice, you have to lend your voice to this work 
you can't just sit on the sidelines. And I'm like, mm, I'm good. She's like, mm, too bad. Coming with me. <laughs> so she really kind of got me into this work. And I remember sitting there at People of Color Network around, you know, there were seven or eight of us always just kind of going, yeah, I'm the first. Yeah, I'm the only. Yeah, I'm the first. Yeah, I'm the only at any given organization. And then she passed away. And the industry kind of looked at me or a few people, I should say, kind of looked at me and go, what's next? And I'm like, um, I don't know. And then it kind of dawned on me that the American theater, when they talk about diversity, uh, I'll, I'll start with diversity, that they are often talking about who's on stage and the, the canon that they're presenting and the audience. And it pretty much stops there. And no one's talking about the world builders. No one was talking about, they may be talking about directors, maybe, but they sure as hell wasn't, weren't talking about stage managers or production managers or technicians. They were definitely not talking about shop folks. So I kind of got, you know, I was at the University of uh, Texas at the time, and I'm like, I'm at an academic institution. They pay me to kind of think this way. They're not going to fire me to think and push against the industry. So I started pushing against the industry, and people are like lamenting. They're like, oh, there are no people of color in, in backstage. They're just not out there. And I'm like, that's bull. It's part of my language, but that's nonsense. We're out here. We're talented. You're just not cultivating anything. So Nations Production Managers, there's a group called the Production Managers Forum, a loose conglomeration of the Nations Production Managers. And I wrote to the Production Managers Forum. I'm like, this is your fault. You all are not cultivating community. You are not cultivating pathways or uh, ways for people to get involved. And the reason that Every production manager in this country is hiring people that look like themselves is because you all refuse to get out of your bubble. So what are you doing about that? And so then um, uh, after Tanisha passed away, the universe says, I always have to have strong black women in my life. In came Sharifa Joka, who headed up the fair program at uh, Oregon Shakespeare Festival. And she's like, well, what are you going to do about this? And I'm like, okay, fine. I get it, universe. I'm, I'm going to get after here and do this. So she brought me to TCG, uh, Theater Communications Group, to their uh, conference. And at that time, they were not, there was no production involvement. Uh, they were not focusing, they were focusing on managing producers and uh, managing directors and artistic directors and not production. So they brought me there to start talking about production uh, backstage and diversity. And then I would start to get phone calls from different leaders going, hey, um, I heard you talking about diverse folks in production. We're looking for a technical director. We're looking for, I'm like, my whole spiel is you have to do the work, not me. And I was like, maybe I should do the work. Maybe I should become a search firm. What would that name? Because, you know, I have to come up with the name before I do anything else because that's how I roll. And I was like, what would that name be? And I'm like, production on deck. And it came to me pretty quickly. So I was like, that's a pretty cool name. And right about then, Megan Zakian Sandberg was working on uh, the first database around diverse talent backstage. So she and I worked on that for a little bit. We talked about uh, making it our own. And then I got hired by the Guthrie and that kind of threw everything sideways. So I went to the Guthrie, started working with Joe Hodge. And um, he and I saw eye to eye uh, on this work. And one of the first things he said to me is like, I will no, no longer have homogenous design teams. Uh, creative teams. And I was like, so say more because I'm digging what you're saying. And he said, I want them to be racially and gender diverse. And I'm like, bet I can do that. Went back to my desk and I'm like, I know so few designers of color. This is kind of a problem. 
So I, I went and started polling the nation's production managers. I'm like, who are uh, designers of color that you've worked with that you've enjoyed working with? Because Megan's list is great, but it has 800 names on it now. So it's very hard for hiring managers to go and sift through all that because you don't know if you're dealing with um, a first-year undergrad student or a Tony Award-winning designer. So to really kind of parse down that list, that was a little bit more manageable. So I built that list. And then fast forward into the pandemic, I finally had a little bit of time on my hands. And I was like, let me build, because all these databases started popping up. There's so many of those databases, but everyone was using, rightfully so, Google Sheets. And that's an impossible URL to memorize for anyone. So what I did was built, I bought the domain production on deck, and then I used it as a house, a house for all the databases that were there, along with some uh, mental health uh, resources, because I don't think, especially in black and brown communities, we don't talk about uh, mental health enough uh, in regard to our profession and our work. So that went up. And then I got a call from Seattle Children's and they're like, hey, these two was Courtney Sale. She's like, I remember you from University of Austin. Your name's come up a couple of times we're getting ready to transition our production manager out. And I was wondering if you would come and do a production audit on our production team to see if they're ready for a change of thought, a diverse perspective, those kind of things. So I'm like, sure. And I had met a woman named Sarah Lozoff, who was uh, a choreographer for uh, one of the first shows I did at uh, the Guthrie. And she and I hit it off right. She's a civil rights kind of person big into EDNI, has mixed race children. We just hit it off. So I was like, I need a, another perspective. So I was like, can I bring another set of eyes out with me? She's like, yep. So Sarah came and joined me and we did a production audit on, on that organization. Well, then Wooly Mammoth heard about it and they're like, we want one too. So we went to Wooly Mammoth and we did that. And then Hannah Sharif, Hannah Sharif took over um, the Repertory Theater of St. Louis, my old stomping ground. And she called me up. She's like, hey, Stu, I'm bringing you and Sarah in to do a production audit on us. Larry Bennett's going to be my new director of production. Larry Bennett was one of my students at the University of Wisconsin. She's like, so you know Larry? You graduated from Webster. You went to you you worked at the Repertory Theater of St. Louis. You're the right person to do this work. So we went in and we did that work. And then after a year, Larry got poached by the Alliance Theater. And so Hannah called me up and goes, what do I do now? I'm like, you're going to have to hire a new director of production. She's like, I don't have time to do this. You and Sarah are now to form a company and become a search firm. I'm like, wait, what? She's like, yep, I'll talk to you later. Bye. She's like, let me know, <laughs> let me know when the proposal's in, in, in my inbox. So we wrote our first proposal up and we sent it to Mark Bernstein, who hired me as gave me my first professional contract. I'm like, hey, old friend, here's this first proposal. And he was very kind. He talked me through some things. He's like, don't do this, do this, rework your numbers, do that. And then uh, we did our first search. And so we, we put that out on Facebook looking for the first director of production. We're like, oh, maybe we'll make you know uh, a little extra money. And we put that first one out on Facebook and the doors blew off. Second stage called, Theater Squared called, Hartford Stage called, all wanting our services. And I'm like, what is going on here? And we fast became the talk of the town. It was kind of crazy. Uh, around the work we were doing. And the, the great thing about it was, as we were setting a new standard, we were like, here are the, here are the, the benchmarks that are our value system that you have to have in place in order to use us. And that was pay transparency. We won't take any searches if 
you don't have pay transparency in your job description, that there are no educational requirements, uh, that you meet the MIT's uh, living wage calculator uh, minimums for uh, salary. Um, that's something that's always in flight, but we want to make sure it's like if you're paying below that, we won't take take the contract. And we start shaping job descriptions as well. And we're starting, and we did this thing where where we have the leadership speak, uh, do a, a little blur video on uh, what they're looking for and why it's important to the company. And we're starting to see that pop up here and there where leaders of different organizations are starting to use that format um, to really kind of give voice to an organization uh, instead of dead words on a page. So a year and three months later, we've worked with virtually all the major regional theaters in the country. And the Guthrie's come back to us. We're getting ready to launch a search for them next week. Um, They've come back to us four times. Hartford Stage has hired us three or four times. We continue to have repeat customers that come back, and uh, we found the Perlman's director of production. We just we enjoy the work; they seem to enjoy us, and um, here we are doing the thing. That's amazing! That's, what a great story! <laughs> and again, a little bit, like a little bit accidental, but done. I truly, love it. <laughs> truly accidental. <laughs> it's like, oops, I have a company. <laughs> <laughs> just on the side. Yeah, what right. Just on the side. <laughs> Uh, so we always ask our, our podcast guests two last questions. And so I'm going to ask you uh, these two things. So what's your favorite part about your job? Without a doubt, the people. The reason I took the, the job about Disney uh, was that I went to, when, uh, they flew me out for an interview and I went to the Lion King. And I remember one of the performers bringing down this little girl. She had been four or five years old in her princess regalia. And he's like, put up your hands like a lion. And she put them up and she's like, roar like a lion. She's like, roar. And so you just watched the magic trickle over her body. And he sent her back up to the bleacher and she stood on the bench and she sang Akuna Matata and every other song at the top of her lungs. And no one told her to, no one turned around and told her to sit down and shut up. No one told her how to enjoy her art. And I'm like, I want to do that. I want to have that kind of influence. I'm like, this is the first time that these young people are exposed to theater. I want, I went in on that and I want in on a global scale. And the the fact that I can influence the world's largest entertainment company to help them produce products. So people can see themselves and feel themselves. It's pretty, pretty cool. That's a sweet spot for sure. (laughs) And if you could change one thing about the industry or your job, what would that be? If I could change one thing about the industry, and this is going to go to regional theater, um, I really wish that we had a different business model because right now when we try to do this work around equitable work and equitable pay, it is very difficult for the American theater to do that. There's the, I would say that for the majority of theaters that the want is there, the capability is not there. Uh, and that is because we are uh, a system based on the kindness of others, either in the form of ticket sales or in terms of soft money and donations. And so there's only so many times you can go out with your hat in your hand asking for money. And if you want to be an accessible theater, there's only so high you can raise your ticket prices before you price out the very people that you're hoping to reach. So I wish that there were a different business model. I wish that our government would realize the value of the arts. 
I'm a firm believer that when we went through the great pause known as uh, the pandemic, that entertainment saved the world's life. When everybody was locked down, what did everybody do? They turned to Netflix, Hulu, Disney Plus, Amazon Prime, and watched and watched and watched us do our work. They watched us do our work, and there's just no return on that investment, and there's no return on that inclusion at at a higher level uh, in the country, in this country. So that's the one thing I wish would change. Oh, that's a really good one. That's a that's a good one to to understand, especially in the context of uh, Americans' regional theater, which I don't know so much about. That's really interesting. <laughs> These two, thank you so much for joining us here on Theatre Art Life podcast. It's really been a pleasure to speak with you. I, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I have truly enjoyed this, and thank you so much for having me. Theatre Art Life is a global media site for entertainment. Memberships start at only thirty-eight US dollars per year. You can have unlimited access to our daily published articles, including entertainment news and the writings of active industry professionals, ensuring that you are always up to date on the global happenings in the world of entertainment. Become a part of the international entertainment community and join us now at www.theaterartlife.com.